Please stand if you're able for a reading of God's holy word. Today's scripture reading is from Luke 9, 18 through 27. Please read with me the verses in bold. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you think that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of God must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. This is the word of the Lord. Let's try. We got it figured out. I know you've been told a lot of things uh, about this Sunday. Apparently, this uh, Sunday, the pastors have a uniform. And it's a <laughs> little sweater situation. Daniel, you look great. <laughs> <laughs> it's also Christ the King Sunday and uh, an appropriate passage in Luke to arrive at as uh, we wrap up our fall series in Luke and look to Advent next week. Luke chapter 9, verses 18 to 22, who do you say that I am? I'll read you a little passage from one of my favorite books. It says, who is Aslan? Asked Susan. Aslan, said Mr. Beaver. Why don't you know? He's the king. He's the Lord of the whole wood. Word has reached us that he has come back. And he'll put all to rights. As it says in the old rhyme in these parts, wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. I imagine many of us Recognize these lines, spoken, spoken by Mr. Beaver in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, written by C.S. Lewis. Uh, but even as I read them again this morning, it's almost impossible for me to remember a moment when I didn't know who Aslan was. I don't get to read those lines ever again without knowing that Aslan is the mighty, majestic lion who saves all of the magical land of Narnia from eternal winter and the curse of the white witch. I don't uh, get to enter into Susan's um, innocent naivete again and say, who is Aslan without sort of knowing? It's like trying to not know that Bruce Wayne is Batman or that Mr. Kringle is actually Santa Claus in Miracle on 34th Street. Once you know, you can't unhear it, right? So I feel a bit of that way about the passage in Luke chapter 9, when in a quiet place, alone with his disciples, Jesus asks, who do the crowds say that I am? 
and it's near impossible for me to truly put myself into the place of the crowds who are uh, actually wondering and actually trying to answer that question. Uh, who is this? It's hard to engage uh, that the crowds didn't actually or hadn't actually heard of Jesus of Nazareth. Even today, it's hard to enter into a church without some sort of preconceived notion about who Jesus is. It's hard to imagine going to a gathering and hearing him teach or seeing him feed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fishes and then have to honestly ask, who is this? And like Susan, actually not know exactly the answer to the question. And so on this last day uh, before Advent on Christ the King Sunday, Luke's account of Jesus' revelation of his true identity and uh, the realization that the most important question is maybe not who was Jesus, but the second question that Jesus asks, which is, who do you say that I am? This morning, I want us to look at these few verses and quickly realize uh, that Peter and the other disciples have the right answer, but maybe the wrong expectation of what that means. Uh, this morning, who do you say I am? And the right answer, but the wrong expectation uh, because I suspect that, like Peter, most of us, or many of us, uh, often have the right answer, but the wrong expectations. Who do you say that I am? Jesus had just sent out 12 disciples. If we look back uh, through the rest of chapter 9 in Luke, we know he just sent out his 12 uh, closest followers on a short-term mission trip. And they have returned, and almost like every short-term missionary does, they're on a spiritual high. They've witnessed people uh, transformed by the message of Jesus, and they've seen people get healed and restored in the short-term mission that they did. And, uh, and, and then as the word is spreading, the powers that be are catching wind of Jesus. Earlier in the chapter, we hear that Herod the Tetrarch is asking about him and trying to figure out if he should be afraid of this guy whose popularity is bubbling and growing around town. And thousands of people are gathering to hear him teach and see his miracles. And just before this passage is the story of Jesus feeding 5,000 hungry people with five loaves and two fishes. And at this point, we read a story that's included in Matthew in some way, in Mark in some way, and in Luke in some way. All three of these gospels include an episode in which rather than taking that opportunity in public uh, to proclaim to the masses his identity. Jesus doesn't feed 5,000 and then say, everybody quiet down because I'm going to declare to you who I am. Instead of holding a press conference and tell everybody he's running for office, Jesus finds a quiet place and he's prayerfully with his disciples and he asks his closest friends, who do the crowds say that I am? And it's really interesting to get a glimpse of the space that, uh, that the space of that 
innocent naivete that, uh, that some of the crowds must have been in. Been in. They're in that space that Susan was in, asking questions about Aslan, truly wondering and trying to figure out who it is that we're listening to and watching and what does this mean. They, they answered, well, some people say John the Baptist, but others say Elijah and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. It's like people are speaking to one another and they say, this guy speaks with authority and he gathers a crowd outside of town. And I I heard another story about a guy named John the Baptist who does the same thing. Maybe this is him. And then somebody else says, this guy came... um, This guy can miraculously feed people with bread in the wilderness. And I know a story about Elijah who fed a widow and her son bread in the wilderness during a drought. Maybe this is Elijah. Maybe this is the guy that the book of Micah said would come and show up foretelling the coming of the Messiah. Maybe this is him. And others say, this guy speaks truth with power and with authority It seems like God is with him and moves in his teaching. Maybe he's a prophet. There hasn't been a prophet who speaks God's word in so long. Maybe this is him. So it's always interesting, uh, actually, to hear what people think about Jesus. It's interesting to ask that question. Who do you, you know, who do you think Jesus is? And it's a great way to start a spiritual conversation. If you're wondering, uh, how do I get to meaningful and important things with my neighbor or with my coworker? Maybe there's an opportunity to say, who do you think Jesus is? Maybe that's too dangerous. Let's notice that when Jesus asks the question, he's not trying to win an argument uh, or... Uh, to lead the conversation to a place where he can fire off a couple of silver bullets, uh, arguments or points that he wants to make. Uh, He's actually wondering, who do people say that I am? And so rather than correcting the little uh, guessing game that the disciples are on, trying to guess Jesus' identity, he follows up with another question. But who do you say that I am? And what he does by asking that question is make clear that while what other people say about Jesus is interesting, it's uh, it's even insightful, it's important for us to know uh, what people in our community or in our workplace or in our neighborhood, where they're at so that uh, we can have important and spiritual conversations. Uh, Jesus makes a subtle statement by asking, who do you say that I am? And what he's saying certainly is that my true identity will not be determined by a survey or a vote. It's, it's not going to be a democracy to decide who Jesus is. He is someone. He has come to do something. Uh, what other people think is not nearly as important as what is happening in my own heart and in my own mind about the question of Jesus. What's happening in your own heart and your own mind when confronted with this idea of who do you say Jesus is. This is the question, essentially, that the author of Luke has been asking in one way or another throughout the book, recounting Jesus' baptism and the power of the Holy Spirit upon him and challenging readers to decide, who do you think this really is? Relaying his teaching that turned even the teachers of the law understanding on its head and challenging authority and asking us as readers to say, who do you think This really is telling of how he healed people of sicknesses and fed 
the hungry and begging us to answer the question, okay, now that you've heard this and read this, who do you think he is? But this is um, the first moment in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus actually asks the question directly. He turns to his disciples, and so essentially as he asks the question, you can imagine him uh, turning up from the page and looking towards the camera and asking the audience, who do you say that I am? We need to address the question for each of us and in our own hearts and minds and for our own lives, what is the answer to that question? It might be the most important question in the world. C.S. Lewis, the author of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe was uh, maybe less famous for his day job. He was the professor of medieval and renaissance English at Cambridge. And uh, he was once actually an outspoken atheist on campus who would debate uh, publicly with anyone who uh, followed Christianity. And in his book, Mere Christianity, actually in his autobiography, uh, Surprised by Joy, he talks about the moment when he himself, after years of resisting and explaining away the evidence uh, for Jesus, began to believe. And this is what he says. He says, I know very well when, but hardly how it happened. I know very well when, but hardly how the final step was taken. I was driven to Whipsnade one sunny morning, and when we set out, I did not believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And when we reached the zoo, I did. And yet, I had not exactly spent the journey in thought, nor in great emotion. It was more like a man after a long sleep, still lying motionless in bed, becomes aware that he is awake. Who do you say Jesus is? Well, C.S. Lewis decided, after being asleep, he says for a long time that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And that's the same conclusion that Peter came to. Uh, Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? And Peter, who is often the self-appointed spokesperson for the disciples, blurts out, the Christ of God. And he uses this Greek word, Christos, which is the, the Greek equivalent of an Old Testament Hebrew word that means Messiah, which means the anointed one, the one who has been chosen by God. And in the Old Testament, uh, someone who was there, was, there were several people that would get anointed. Prophets were anointed to speak God's word. Priests were anointed to mediate between people and God in worship. But most of the time when people thought of the person that got anointed, probably when the disciples thought of the person that would get anointed, they were thinking about the king. The king would be anointed to lead God's people. King David was anointed as king. But in each of these instances in the Old Testament, when we hear about an anointing, there is a, a foreshadowing or a hinting or an, even an outright declaration that one day, God was going to send the greatest prophet to speak his word. He was going to send the greatest priest who would ever mediate worship. Someday he was going to send the king of kings, the deliverer who would crush the head of Satan, arrive in David's royal city and reign over a kingdom that endures forever. 
And that's probably what was shaking around in Peter's head when he blurts out, Christos, you're the Christ of God. And Peter's confession is actually the climax of this first half of the Gospel of Luke. Up until this point, uh, this is the apex experience. This is what you might imagine. Jesus was trying to move these 12 guys and the, and the men and women that were following with them to believe, to accept, to confess. Um, this is very intentional that we're preaching this passage on Christ the King Sunday. It's the finale of this fall sermon series before we begin thinking about Advent. And so we're ending the fall with this, with this confession with Peter, Jesus the Christ of God, Christos. And so Peter blurts it out, and what is Jesus' response? A celebration, let's eat the cake. You've, you've, you've discovered it. A promotion of Peter, not in this passage anyway. You are now the assistant to the manager of the disciples. <laughs> Peter says, you are the Christ of God. And Jesus says, shh, keep it down. And he strictly commands them and charges them to tell no one. That's what the passage says. Why? If this is the climactic moment, why doesn't Jesus want them to tell anyone? It's not because he didn't eventually want you and me to know that he is God's anointed, the Messiah. I think it has everything to do with the fact that Jesus realizes that while Peter has the right answer, he still has completely wrong expectations about what Christos has to mean if it's going to mean anything at all in the history of salvation. If Peter and the others run off from this moment right now, they run out in public and chase all the people down that ate the, the loaves and fishes and start proclaiming Jesus as the Christ, then most likely they're going to be inviting that 5,000 people back to follow Jesus in an insurrection against Rome, a campaign to restore Israel as a nation state uh, that uses Old Testament law as its rule. Maybe, maybe, maybe not. Maybe they will chase those folks down and invite them to follow Jesus in uh, setting about creating a system through which everyone can line up and see Jesus and be healed and fed and social uh, problems will be no more. Uh, to put it bluntly, we can assume that Jesus knew that if the disciples didn't wait until they had a better understanding of what he had come to do, then there was no way around the fact that the gospel that they would go out and preach would get mixed up with their politics and with their other expectations. We get mixed up with what people would think the good news was, and that might be returning to a golden political age for Israel and their country, about restructuring social systems for the greater good. But Jesus knew that eventually Rome was going to be vanquished anyway, that that wasn't the ultimate thing that he could do. He knew that the social safety systems in the world would be thought and reworked and worked thousands of times, but the creation would still be broken and cursed. 
that people would still be lost in sin and separated from God and haunted by the fear of death. Unless, unless the anointed one had actually come to deal with those things, those core issues about what it means to be human, to be broken, to be separated from God, to be in rebellion against our creator, to deal with the cause and not the symptoms, to restore creation from its fall and to reconcile rebellious humanity to its maker. And so the passage says that Jesus immediately launches into a forecast of what it means to be on mission as the Messiah. And he says that the Messiah must suffer, be humiliated, crucified, and die. It says the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. This stuff would have have shocked the disciples. If we could just get our minds back into that innocent naivete and say, what? A suffering Messiah was an oxymoron. A Messiah in their mind was by definition a mighty deliverer, a triumphant ruler. A dead Messiah would be proof that that person was no Messiah at all. We have a lot to learn from this, I think, because I think we, like disciples, have a strong tendency as well to paste Jesus as Lord onto our own hopes and expectations. And we're just as bewildered as the disciples were when we realize through circumstances and difficulty that we don't actually prescribe to Jesus what kind of Messiah he gets to be in our lives. He shows us by his life and by his death and by his resurrection what kind of Messiah he had to be. Jesus knew that a Messiah, an anointed one, would have to be rejected like the prophets in the Old Testament who were anointed to speak God's word. If God came among us to save us, he would himself be rejected and scorned rather than celebrated and worshiped. Why? Because the reason we need saving is because we've rejected God and scorned his law. That's the the definition of sins. We don't want his plans for our lives. We've disconnected ourselves with the creator. And if someone showed up who was God we would scorn him. That's sin. Jesus knew that a Messiah, an anointed one, would have to die like the anointed priests of the Old Testament, constantly performing sacrifices. They were substituting the death of a lamb or a goat in the place of the death that we deserved by rejecting God. And if God was going to save his people from sin and death, he would have to provide a perfect sacrifice, a perfect lamb that would die once and for all. Jesus knew that a Messiah, the anointed one, would have to be raised again. He knew like the anointing kings of the Old Testament that if God was going to conquer the enemy of death, which is our ultimate enemy, then he would uh, conquer that enemy and then free those who were its prisoners and lead them like a conquering king out of the grave in victory. Jesus knew that before the disciples could proclaim the true Messiah, the true Christ, uh, before they could proclaim more than just a great healer, before they could proclaim just a more, more than just a great teacher, before they could proclaim someone who was there and fit all of the profile to fulfill that what, what had been foretold in their scriptures, 
They needed to understand that he was more than a great teacher. They needed to understand what it meant for him to not be an example Christ, but a crucified Christ. Here's C.S. Lewis's words as he considers it himself, and I'll give them to you as uh, a, a closing reflection as you ask this question for yourself. Who do you say Jesus is? In Mere Christianity, Lewis writes, I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying that, that really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus, that they're ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but not to accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we cannot say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says that he's a poached egg, or else he would be a devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit on him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now, it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God.